is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to Season 2, Beyond the Studio West Coast Edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll share honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. Support for this season comes from Southern Exposure's Alternative Exposure Grant Program in partnership with Facebook's Artist in Residence Program and the Andy Warhol Foundation. If you find value in listening to Beyond the Studio, we'd love to ask you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's the easiest way to show us some love and to help others find the podcast. Thank you so much in advance for letting us know what you think and for supporting the show. You might hear some adult language used occasionally on the show, so please be mindful of those around you and pop in some headphones if needed. When I'm not working on the podcast, I'm working on my fiber art and illustration brand, Close Call Studio. So if you want to follow along with my own journey, you can check me out on Instagram at Close Call Studio or check out my website at CloseCallStudio.com. It's Nicole here, your other Beyond the Studio co-host. I'm a painter, muralist, and installation artist. If you want to see more of my work and studio process, you can find me on Instagram at Nicole Marie Muller or my website, which is Nicole Marie Muller. That's M-U-E-L-L-E-R dot com. All right. If you're listening to this episode right now, you probably noticed at the very beginning that it says part one. That's because this is part one. Part one of two. So today's conversation was so good, we couldn't edit down the information to fit within our typical hour-long episode length. So rather than try to cut it down and lose potentially valuable information, we decided to just give you guys the full conversation, but break it into two parts. So with that said, let's get started. On today's episode, Nicole and I will be interviewing Portland-based multidisciplinary artist, Wendy Redstar. Wendy, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. For listeners that are not familiar with you and your work, can you kind of walk us through your creative journey thus far, your background, your interest in art, school, work experience, kind of whatever encompasses your your creative journey? Yeah. um, So I'm from originally from Montana. I grew up on the Crow Indian Reservation. And I did my undergrad at Montana State University in Bozeman. I started out first uh, in graphic design and then switched to a sculpture major. And then I got my MFA at UCLA, also in sculpture. And from there on, I I didn't uh, do the model that sort of UCLA pumped everybody out to do, which was to get like a gallery then uh, the gallery leads to getting you into a museum and then you're a famous art star. <laughs> um, uh-huh. and I thought that was how just it worked. Like that. <laughs> yeah, that's how it's supposed to happen. So I think my idea was to be in a residency bum, an artist residency bum, and then see where that would take me. But I, that was also cut short because I ended up getting pregnant and moving to Portland, Oregon, and I adjunct for about seven years. I ran a state park for a year in Montana on my reservation. And then I worked at an arts nonprofit. And then I got laid off in uh, the end of 2015. And I've been self-employed, sustaining myself on my art practice since 2016. And that's 
pretty much the gist of my path so far. (laughs) Your journey distilled into a nutshell. Yes, yes. Had you thought about going full-time as an artist before losing that job? Or was that kind of the catalyst that you were like, you know what, I'm going to try to do this? I think what happened for me... I had been uh, showing or kind of staying active since I left graduate school. I actually had this amazing opportunity that was uh, given to me by Nancy Rubens, who was a professor at UCLA just for my first quarter. She had had an exhibition in the past at the Foundation Cartier in Paris, France, and um, My first year at grad school, she asked me if I wanted to participate in the show. And basically, the Cartier Foundation decided to put a show together where they would ask uh, previous artists that had shown there to select a young artist that they would support in, in having the work exhibited there. So it was this large group show of young artists and it was an amazing experience. So I, uh, I feel like my sort of ex- exhibiting career kind of started with that show. And then I, I kind of applied for different shows right after graduate school. But I thought, you know, logically, I thought, well, if I'm going to make money, how am I going to make money? Because I, you know, thinking of, you know, all my family, pretty much, they're like, Wendy's going to be poor <laughs> her whole life. <laughs> Um, so to me, it was like, okay, I'll, I'll get a, a master's and that way I can teach. So I really thought that was the route that I was going to go. And then the sort of the other turning point for me was I, I was married and then I was going through a divorce between 2012 and 2013. And I had moved from Portland back to my reservation and I got my first adult job. And when I say adult job... It was a job that had benefits. Ah, those old things. <laughs> yes, exactly. I made no art and um, it was sort of very depressing <laughs> points in my life because uh, I also have an amazing daughter uh, who's 11. I was asked by, I didn't know him at the time, but another Native artist, his name, his name is Dwayne Linklater, when I was managing the park in Montana, he reached out of uh, out to me out of the blue and asked if I would want to be a visiting artist at the Banff Center in Canada near Calgary. And uh, I was able to get some time away from that job for like a week to go up there and it reignited my interest in doing art again. And I knew that I had to get back to Portland, Oregon, because I just couldn't be away from my kid long distance all the time like that. So I was going to go regardless of if I had to work at McDonald's or any job. But I also decided I was going to say yes to art. And so fortunately, I was able to move back and I I found a job working at a nonprofit arts organization, just doing a lot of administrative work. But I had sort of this mindset that I was going to say yes to art and and try to really work on building my career. It got to the point where I was taking all my sick time and vacation time to do any sort of art opportunity that came my way. And I wasn't even thinking about being properly paid for my time or, or any of that. I was just trying to do as much as possible. And I was really looking at my job as sort of like what was sustaining me and paying the rent. And I kind of worked myself in a situation that I came to this point where 
I had to ask my job if I could take unpaid time off. So I'm sure they weren't happy with that, but they, you know, agreed to let me do that. And then shortly after that, I got laid off. <laughs> but oh, I was sort so of... they agreed and then they did. Yes. Yeah. I was really working up though, trying to ask them if I could work part-time, which I know sounds totally insane. Like what job would want their worker <laughs> to say, hey, can I work part-time for you guys? But not realizing that actually I was making more money doing my art-related activities than I was actually at the job because I hadn't really sat down to evaluate what I was making. And so when I got laid off, it felt very much like a, I got pushed off the cliff and a free fall it was very, very scary. Again, I think I went to the worst case scenario that I would be homeless, living on the streets, but it ended up- We uh, all go through that, no worries. <laughs> yes. yes I, yeah, so- um, it was just kind of an incredible journey. So I've just been, it's been a steep learning curve as a self-employed person, but I, I just can't even imagine. I think the worst case scenario for me would be if I had to get a job. I just, I, mm-hmm. I don't even know what I would do. McDonald's is still there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's it, just mentally though, I, it's so interesting to hear about the shifts that occurred um, at each point in your life and and your career and and also really refreshing to hear I think how you did have this period of time where you weren't making work and that there are these seasons to your life and so I think it's important to hear and remember that because a pressure that I know that we Amanda and I have felt and we talked about before is just the pressure to produce and to sort of always be moving forward and and growing and kind of elevating whatever you're doing and so I think that though understanding that you know your your life has seasons and that sometimes that requires stepping back from your your craft and that doesn't mean that you're not an artist or that you're life and career as an artist isn't still growing but that you know maybe you have other priorities at that moment in time and so I think it's really helpful to hear about those life transitions um, because there is that feeling I think sometimes for artists who are are working the day job and then moonlighting on their work or feeling like maybe they just can't devote time to their um, art making and that that's okay um, and that you know, I think it's also interesting when you made the decision to just say yes to art, that at a later point, that was going to become more of a priority for you. Yeah, definitely. When I decided to say yes to art, that was around 2014. I was putting together a resume for a group show that I was going to be in. That's when it dawned on me that I had not made any work or had been any in any shows during 2012 to 2013. And I sort of equated that to like, oh, that's why I was feeling so crappy because I actually really do need Mm. this creative outlet to fill my whole self. So that really stuck out to me uh, when I realized, wow, you know, you you made no art and you did no really art related things during that time period. Yeah. And I'm sure in the moment, an entire year or two years feels like such a long period of time. But then we're always trying to remind ourselves that we're trying to build lives as artists. And so in the grand scheme of things, a year or two years isn't really that much. And that, you know, again, you're you're really building this life. I feel like there is so much we could dive into in each of these chapters. But 
maybe it would be interesting to go a little further back in time and when you were bouncing around to residencies and maybe fresh out of grad school what did that transition look like or how are you navigating life as an artist at that point in time you had made a conscious decision to go maybe in a different direction than what it sounds like your graduate school experience was sort of pushing you towards but did you have a clear idea of what you wanted your life to look like instead or were you trying to just take each opportunity as it came? Yeah, I was, uh, it was an interesting time period, right? When you're ready to graduate and everyone's constantly on your back. I'm always interested (laughs) in those like first few years because they are so ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like everyone's trying to ask you what you're going to do and you wish they wouldn't ask you because you're terrified. And, you know, I, you know, some of my friends were just like, I'm going to stick around and, or I'm going to, you know, be an assistant to some of the professors and their work. Or a lot of students were working for institutions or galleries around town to hang the work. And I, I thought, well, why don't I try some artist residencies and uh, so I applied to Skohegan in Maine, and I ended up getting in. So that was pretty awesome. Um, and it w- I learned that I was going to be getting in like a few months uh, before graduation. So I was like, oh, I'm set. And I think I, I can't really quite remember. I think I had like a month where I was just going to be floating around trying to figure out where I was going to, what I was going to do just for a month. And then I, I would have a few months at Skohegan But I also had applied to uh, Provincetown Fine Art Work Center as well, which was, uh, I think, uh, like nine months or a year. I can't remember. This is back in 2006. And I ended up uh, learning that I got that as well. And it just so happened that, you know, uh, I would have to kind of float around for like another month in between those two residencies. So I was like, oh, this is amazing. And the goal was to uh, do residencies that would provide you a place to stay in a studio and if they paid you that would that's amazing so I was really kind of looking for those and and that was a plan I would just continue applying to different residencies to try to figure stuff out like I was thinking I would uh, have these experiences and it would either lead to the next one or maybe opportunities would open up that would point me in a different direction mm-hmm. yeah and How strategic or selective were you being with the residencies you were applying to? Because sometimes these application cycles can be fairly far out where you're applying maybe a year in advance for something. So were you just pushing out as many as possible or what was your strategy in trying to kind of sync these up back to back? Yeah, I I was being pretty strategic and I was also kind of caught up in really thinking of uh, prestigious ones that would build my resume as well. Skowhegan's a, a pretty good starting point for that. I yeah, yeah. And there was a partnership too with the with UCLA. So they I ended up not having to pay for anything. Oh. So that was wow. okay. that was good. But yeah, I pretty much had it worked out for about a year out. And when I got to Provincetown, that was sort of the mission that I would then continue like hitting the next like cycle of applications. And uh, I was really looking at um, sort of different locations, but also, again, like things that I considered to be resume builder things, which I'm not so into now. (laughs) But uh, definitely, I was still in sort of that mentality from grad school, like you have to be in Mm -hmm. these certain shows, you have to uh, do these certain residencies. 
And were you starting to feel the effects of those, um, just things sort of building on each other or other opportunities either for exhibitions or whatever it was starting to come about through those connections? Yeah, I mean, Skowhegan's the whole like a a cliche thing happened to me where I met my (laughs) ex-husband. So that happened. Um, So I met him there. And but I also met some really incredible artists that I'm still in touch with today. And it's really wonderful. Like I'm even in an exhibition right now at the Ford Foundation building in in New York City with a Skowhegan artist that I went to that residency Mm -hmm. with. So just through that, I feel like there was that nice sort of network that way that I was uh, getting out of those situations. Um, although I made like zero work at either of those uh, residencies, I was swimming, doing laundry, and more so like just <laughs> talking with all these different artists. But I really find it hard to produce work when I do a residency. It's just not, it takes me about a year to settle in to a place and get set up and feel comfortable to produce work. So I learned that too as well participating in those residencies. So I'm interested then, because living this sort of nomadic lifestyle, and then as your life starts to change and take these twists and turns, do you see residencies fitting into the picture now? Or is that something that you've sort of moved away from? And I'm interested in sort of like following these different chapters of your life too, since it seems like they're kind of bookended by either moves and location and kind of shifts in your career. Yeah, I mean, I think the most successful residency that I've had um, where I've accomplished making some work and some work that I'm really proud of is a residency called Crow Shadow Institute of the Arts. And it's on the Umatilla Indian Reservation in Oregon. And basically, you have to sign a contract. You work with a um, master printer, so it's all prints. And you have to sign a contract that you will make a body of work. (laughs) So you can't get out of it. No (laughs) pressure. Oh, that contract helps for sure. (laughs) Yeah. And it was kind of amazing. I I have a fear of working in 2D. uh, So it's sort of fearful. But that's kind of their whole motive is they want artists that don't really... Uh, they without work in other mediums besides printmaking. But I didn't really have an idea of what it, that would be like to work with a master printer. And so that was an interesting experience in communication because a lot of it is that sort of like he, uh, his name was Frank Jensen, made, you know, mixed all the paint and pretty much did all the labor. And it was really about my ideas. But I feel like that was the most successful residency and my favorite residency. I've also done like uh, the Bemis residency in Omaha, Nebraska. Again, it was pretty short and I didn't produce a work, but I hooked up with the Jocelyn Art Museum and I'll have an exhibition there in October. So there are different things like that, that um, I feel like, you know, are other ways that I'm getting something out of doing these residencies. But again, I like travel so much. Um, that being home is, is a luxury for me. And so the idea of being away from home, it had, it'd have to be pretty sweet. And also now being more of a, like a seasoned artist, um, and not a young artist who's just sort of saying yes to everything and kind of going Mm -hmm. along with whatever's thrown at you. It would have to be a pretty sweet kind of gig to make me want to spend time away from my home and my kid and my animals and my plants. Yeah. This is a fairly broad question, but in what other ways has becoming a parent shifted your 
artistic practice or maybe the way that you approached or viewed your art career, whether in terms of travel. We can spend as much time on this, by the way, because I'm sure this is real loaded. (laughs) I have to reveal too, I was trying to figure out how was the best way to share this, but through through your work, we actually discovered um, that your daughter has a podcast, which is amazing. <laughs> and yes, we love it so much. Yeah, Bee's Big Laughs, for anyone who's listening, uh, you should absolutely go check it out. She's so funny and wonderful, and you can let her know that we're big fans. She'll love hearing that. Beatrice is incredible. She's just incredible. She's amazing. I feel lucky to have such an incredible human being to like be around and share experiences with and she's just changed my whole entire life and I know that's like such a cliche thing right like people talk about having children but she was really kind of for me when Mm -hmm. I had her I was uh, 26 and just right out of graduate school and still kind of forming my own identity but she gave me a whole new sense of purpose and I really feel like she's responsible for me being really determined to make the work that I do and to instill like identity, crow culture, that history in uh, passing along to her. And we actually have a collaborative practice that uh, we started together when she was seven years old. That's been an an amazing adventure to work with such a young person at these uh, different institutions. And just to see you know, her approach and her perspective and foster that and also like open institutions up to taking artists and uh, parents and and also Mm -hmm. young children's points of view seriously. So it's been kind of this amazing journey. And her her podcast is like her own little avenue of that. She does that with uh, her father sort of supports that project. And that's been just so fun just to be a fan listening to her interview the people that she's interviewed and being young and not really realizing how epic some of those people (laughs) she's interviewing. Like, uh, I think my favorite one is her her interview with Fred Armisen, um, just because they they do these improv uh, fake ads. I was like, mm-hmm. do you have any idea who you're improving with? <laughs> that is just <laughs> so crazy to me. It is so good. When I first turned it on, I was like, oh, I'm going to listen to this because this looks adorable and I think it will make me happy and it seems pure and precious and wonderful. And it was all those things and so much more. I'm so interested in like what it's like parenting as an artist, collaborating with your daughter, raising an artist. And yeah, she, I mean, I'm real jealous. I'm like, when can we get Abby Jacobson on the show? Can we pull the the Micah grad card? Like we all went to the same school. Can we use that? (laughs) You should totally use it. Hi, we we know Beatrice. Yeah. (laughs) You could go that route. She'll be our link. (laughs) You could go that route. You know, our collaboration actually, that was a sort of an interesting start because I was at that point, um, it was an exhibition that I had at the Portland Art Museum in 2014. And I was uh, making a series about this Crow chief of ours named Medicine Crow and these images of him that had been sort of appropriated by big corporate companies and also just all sorts of artists were making paintings and drawings of these two photographs. And so I started doing research into that and I ended up on this very interesting journey of learning about 
what happened that day that he sat down to take that photo. And it was a delegation portrait that was taken in 1880. And it wasn't just him that was there. It was five other Crow chiefs that traveled from Montana to Washington, D.C. But in that, I was like researching uh, these chiefs and the delegation portraits uh, that were taken of them. And I was also, like I said, working full time and taking every spare moment that I could to fit in art. So I, I also like to mention at this point in my life, I, 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 you know, single parent sharing custody with B's father. And it was a night that I had her and I had to like finish this show. There was like finish up what I was doing, but I also needed like one more piece to kind of make everything come together. And she had asked me to play with her. And I, and I was like, oh, I can't. Like, I really need to get this work finished. But I had a stack of Xerox copies of these photos of the chief. So I just handed her the stack of copies. And I said, you can play with these, you know. And she came back a little while later and plopped down this beautiful, like, coloring over the top of Medicine Crow. And I thought, wait a minute. Like, this is pretty amazing. And it's sort of a perfect way to round out the show by including the next generation and uh, Beatrice's voice and her ownership of her her history and these chiefs. And so that's how our collaboration started. I asked if she would like to produce more of these sort of drawings using the chief's images. And so she produced about over 20 of these drawings and I included them in the exhibition. And on the way over to the opening, we were driving over there together. And she said to me in the car, she was seven, I want to talk about my work. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no. Like I, <laughs> You're raising an artist. <laughs> I was like, uh, can't be a giant hypocrite, right? Me talk about my work and not allow her to talk about her work. Absolutely. And so I was really nervous about that because she's, you know, seven and she's very transparent. And sometimes she says things like that. I don't think people should know, (laughs) you know, as a kid. But also I (laughs) had never, you know, I don't, I was a little concerned too. Like, would she be able to talk in front of a giant group of people? So when it came time for her to talk about her work, she did an amazing job. And it dawned on me that, we could actually do this. And why was I separating the two of us, like my, you know, Mm. our career stuff and be, you know, isn't part of that. And I was like, I don't need to segregate these two things. It's a great way for B to learn about her culture and also just what it's like to be an artist. Um, And she's just does an an exceptional job um, public speaking. So it started off as her doing tours for her own class. So we invited her own class and she did the whole tour, uh, including my own work. I wasn't allowed to to speak. And then then, um, any sort of opportunity that started coming my way, I would Mm -hmm. ask her, hey, do you want to do something? at like the Tacoma Art Museum. They've asked me if I'd wanted to do something. I would tell the Tacoma Art Museum, hey, uh, do you mind if I do a collaboration with my seven-year-old? And (laughs) of course, you know, I think everyone in the beginning thought it was, oh, just some kind of cutesy stuff, you know, mom and daughter. And then when we would go there, they were sort of like, oh, shit, like she's actually... (laughs) very articulate and, you know, stands on her own ground. So, yeah, we had some interesting experiences uh, early on. And uh, another kind of big 
project that kind of uh, changed our collaboration um, in another direction was when we did a residency at the Denver Art Museum. And it was there that she said she wanted to design a tour specifically for children. And so she did three 30-minute tours. Um, and we sort of gave her all the access that an adult would have. She had like a little badge and she went around the museum and selected the work she wanted to talk about. And then uh, a docent or a curator would educate her on those works. And then she also asked that she would, you know, the tour would be for children ages three to 12. And, you know, we asked her, well, why is 12 the cutoff? And she said, well, when you turn 13, you get a bit strange. <laughs> I was like, so funny. She's not wrong. <laughs> True. And, um, I mean, we're moving into that territory now, her being 11. She's changed so much. But with, with that experience, it was pretty incredible to have her do these tours and to watch how engaged the children were with her. I've never seen that happen. You know, I've seen adults give tours to children in uh, institutions. And, you know, the kids are kind of not so engaged and kind of looking all around. Well, these children were like glued onto to be. And she had a whole tour guide outfit that I sewed for her. And so we sort of kind of continued with, with that uh, model of her giving tours of uh, collections at institutions or specific exhibitions. So it's been pretty amazing. And she's 11 now. She's in sixth grade and a lot changes. She's a big nerd. She's really into getting straight A's. So it's, it's harder now uh, to take her out of school because um, she's more focused on being in school now, which is great. I mean, I can't ask for anything better than that. Um, but it's constantly evolving and it, our practice evolves at a a very fast rate. Man, that's so amazing to hear about. And just so beautiful too. what can happen when just giving really full ownership and agency over the project and and approaching everything as like true co collaborators, and to hear too about the impact that that then has on other people of her generation and how you know she's able to be this vehicle for connection to really engage with this next generation of you know potential artists and art lovers who otherwise wouldn't wouldn't have that same level of access or engagement with a museum or something like that you know and I feel like at an institutional level like these conversations are always taking place like how do you further engage and interact with you know young people and bring more into the museums and so it's just so inspiring to hear how well you've just literally given turned the reins over to to another young person to be responsible for that and how much more effective they are than, you know, these adults who are there that know, are very knowledgeable about the work and um, all of this, but just how, and how it sounds like she's really kind of grown into and stepped up into all of these roles, the more kind of responsibility that she's been given. And I just, I think that's such a unique partnership and collaboration that you all have. And I know we were really excited to, to talk with you about it too, because we definitely have listeners who are artists and parents. And I mean, even amongst our kind of closer peer and friend group, I know that Amanda and I have friends who are artists who are uh, new moms or starting to to figure out how to incorporate their family life into their artistic practice and vice versa and what's the relationship between those two things and bringing their kids into the studio with them and so it's been really amazing to sort of watch that happen and to hear your story about you know what that could look like maybe five or ten years down the road 
I'm interested to know about, in addition to your collaboration with your daughter, what what other forms has your work taken recently? Or would you say that your practice has evolved around working with various institutions or museums? Or in what other ways has your career started to build with some of the more recent opportunities that you've had? Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, it's so funny. I just started working with this gallery in New York City, and I was talking to the gallerist, and she told me, yeah, you have a real backwards career. (laughs) And I've talked to my other uh, friends, like Amir, who you've had on this podcast. We went to UCLA together, and we have very different... Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, we have very different careers where he's, he's sort of, to me went out and like got that gallery and has kind of shown a lot in uh, the commercial world. And for myself, I haven't really um, shown in the commercial world at all. I mean, I I really feel like that's only happened in the last maybe few years. And it feels so weird to me. So I'm really used to showing as sort of alternative spaces like nonprofit spaces or university galleries or working in uh, museums. And so it's sort of different. I've never like uh, really felt like my work was sellable, you know, uh, because the places that I was showing it, that's not their motive. They're not there to uh, Mm -hmm. sell work. Um, So I never, ever really had that sort of pressure on myself to to think about that and I I it then forced me to think of other avenues of like how do you make money because I feel like you know a lot of young students who are in art school think that's the only way you make money is you sell your artwork and so yeah I feel like it's been a really interesting route and I think what's really helped me kind of continue down that line I really do like showing my work in the places that I'm showing it and also having access to a lot of those institutions resources and collections so I do really like being in that space but I think what's really helped me is I have a pretty robust uh, lecture career with uh, different universities and through that I feel like every time I do a lecture you never know who's in the crowd and I'll end up, you know, my work will end up being shared and uh, it's because someone attended my lecture and they told a colleague of theirs or a person at another institution and it's just sort of kind of continued to build and um, snowball. So that's been really amazing. And some of these institutions like in Iowa or whatever are very, really generous and have a great uh, funding and mm-hmm. treat artists really well. So there's it, it's allowed me to like see a lot of places and interact with the, all sorts of different communities. And so that's really what's been going on is just that's been building quite a bit. And I would say definitely my career and showing with museums has continued to grow quite a bit as well. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting to hear. I feel like we had spoken with another I'm trying to think of what what artists, but had mentioned a similar connection between public lectures, um, opportunities that came about through them. Um, Were those also things that had just started to happen organically through connections you're making either through residencies or how did these opportunities to become a visiting artist or uh, invitations for guest lectures start to come about? That's a yeah. That's a really good thing for me to think about. I've been trying to trace that back, but you know, um, 
when I was uh, still married and I was an adjunct, I worked at Portland State University. And I will say the tools that I gained from teaching were how to do public speaking. Mm -hmm. Um, And that really helped. But the other thing that helped um, was my ex-husband had some opportunities in Australia And as part of that, I got to go on the trip and they set me up with doing like five lectures there. And I like was so horrible. (laughs) I was so horrible. You got those ones out of the way. I'm so happy that happened in Australia and not anywhere here. So I could just like, you know, have my Couldn't be further away. (laughs) Yeah, testing. So through that, yeah, that's such a great question like tracing that back and how that began and I do think it probably started where I got invited to a university to have an exhibition and a lot of times what will happen if I have an exhibition at a university they'll invite me out to do a lecture and to work with their students so it probably happened that's probably what happened I got a chance or an opportunity to exhibit at a university and then from there got a chance to lecture Mm-hmm. Um, and so in what other ways has this shift from working more with alternative spaces and museums to working in more of the commercial gallery world? How else would you describe that in terms of like what the impact has been for your artistic practice or the way that you're thinking about your work or career? Um, and it sounds like you're still maintaining um, there are sort of equal opportunities rising through both, but I would be interested to hear a little bit about that too, because you're right, it seems like a lot of artists are sort of taking the opposite route of working in galleries and then maybe eventually showing in museum spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, but since you've sort of gone in the reverse direction with that. Yeah, I feel, uh, well, with this particular gallery, I'm, I'm going to have a show at the end of this month with them. And actually, I've had like a few experiences with commercial galleries and one where I made like a new body of work and had a show. And it really wigged me out because uh, I really did feel this sort of pressure that a pressure that I had to make work that they would be able to sell. And they weren't even putting that on me. I, it was just something that mm-hmm. came with that territory where when I make work for an institution, I never, ever think about that and don't feel any of that sort of pressure. But that work ends up, you know, selling eventually. So it's kind of interesting. So with this woman, I kind of told her that, yeah, this is one of my hangups. Like, I'm just really not used to thinking of the work commercially or any or any of that. And so she's been really kind of excellent in uh, being very kind of candid and open with me and very clear with communication, which I think is so important if you're going to get into involved with a, a gallery to really be upfront with each other. And... She's just said, look, like, just do what you do. Don't think about that. And that's really my responsibility. (laughs) And a good Mm. gallery should take that on. That's their responsibility. That's their expertise. So I actually feel pretty good about the work that I'm producing for that show that that it's finally I don't feel like I have that certain kind of pressure. The pressure I'm feeling is like, wow, is New York City even going to like this work? (laughs) Different (laughs) forms of pressure. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not too worried about that either. 
Yeah, that's really wonderful to hear. And I'm so curious too, as an artist that is not really concerned with making quote unquote commercial work, but who is also sustaining themselves through their practice, whether this is now or maybe at the point where you made this transition into becoming more full-time or left your previous job at the nonprofit. In what other forms is income coming through to you, whether through speaking or through exhibition opportunities? Like how would you describe the breakdown between those things? That's a good question. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, and I don't know if it's, oh, it's not luck, you know, I'm, I'm applying for grants and I'm applying for fellowships and, you know, I'm, I make a point to try to just apply to things and just try. I've been able to get some pretty good fellowships since the time that I was laid off at the end of 2015. I've gotten a pretty substantial fellowship each year. So that's definitely, you know, part of the, part of the pie for me sustaining mm-hmm. myself. And then like with my lectures, something that really helped me was right when I got laid off, I was literally walking out the door of my job. I got a call from the Joan Mitchell Foundation. Wow. <laughs> and they're like, congratulations. <laughs> Beautiful timing. Yeah. They're like, congratulations. You got the Emerging Artists Award. And that was, I think like, I want to say that was like 11,000 or something. It was like, oh, I can pay rent for X amount of months, you know, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. But they then had a, a, that group of uh, fellows go to New Orleans because they have a, they have an office there and they did sort of a retreat for us and they invited um, some people from Creative Capital and there they had us do like this goal book. Love them. Yes. They had us do like a goal book and then they um, had us figure out like what our uh, value was for our time. And that was so important, a really great equation. I I recommend like all artists do this so you can figure out like what your value is. Uh, And that really helped me. So basically they ask you to, what would it take for you to sustain your practice and be able to pay all your bills? What's that like number? And then take that number and then you have a little equation where you can figure out like how much you'd need to make uh, in, in a week, how much you would need to make in a day, uh, how much you make hourly. Um, and then therefore you can kind of apply that to, for instance, if I'm going to go to do a lecture, let's say my day rate's like 500, then, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm traveling there one day, do my lecture the next day and then fly out 1500, you know? And so when, it, once I was able to like think of it in more logical terms and not these sort of emotional terms or with low self-esteem thinking, oh, I can't ask them for that amount, realizing, no, I've got to ask that amount or I can't pay my bills or my health insurance or take care of my kid. When you have that standing behind you, you're like, yeah, I can ask this institution and I have all this behind me to sort of back me up. Yeah, this is what I need. Otherwise, it's not worth my time. I'll, I'll like have to find something else to, to make up that amount of money. So that, yeah. that was really, really helpful. It makes such a big difference when you get clear on your numbers. I know a couple years ago I had to do the same thing where I was like, okay, I need to figure out what it takes to keep me alive and keep me out of the possibility of getting kicked out of my home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and it's once you kind of realize like, okay, these numbers are not 
it doesn't have anything to do with how I feel about myself or how I feel about my work or the value I'm contributing to the world. Like these are hard facts that I need to make if I want to survive. And it makes it so much easier to ask for those amounts when you know it's the amount that you need. It's not a number that you just like grabbed out of thin air hoping that it would be enough. And it's it's hard because as artists, we tie so much of our self-worth with the work that we're creating. It's easy to tie that into the monetary value of it as well when it really, I mean, how you view yourself does not deem how much you should get paid for your time and your work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so important because making art is very emotional. All all of my art comes from a very emotional place. But then when it comes down to the business of art, really being able to emotionally separate yourself from it. And I know, Mm -hmm. you know, other artists might have somebody that they, you know, talk to who can kind of logically break that down. That's outside of the art world, (laughs) you know, like, no, dude, like do this. But for me, that's been like one of those steep learning curves, like, uh, oh, this is like a matter of uh, fact and that I shouldn't feel like that I'm not worthy of that. And it's not, like you said, I'm not pulling some giant number that has no meaning behind it. And to have it backed with uh, meaning and and real fact, I think is so helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, figuring out that you know, what my value was and what I need to ask for, then, you know, I set my lecture fee appropriately to that. And yeah, so all of those things sort of combined are what have helped me. And then just like within the last couple years, I started selling work. And and that is also part of the equation of how I'm sustaining myself. And I had this amazing patron that also came into my life around 2016. He recently passed away uh, last October, but um, he was kind of this incredible unicorn-like person. Um, It's okay to call him a unicorn because I talked to him about that Um, and he he liked it. Um, But he, uh, he did this amazing thing. He really wanted to support indigenous women artists. And um, so he helped get my work into close to like 25 different museum collections. Wow. And that was really amazing. Also very illuminating. I think I was very naive and that I thought as an artist, you know, you just work really hard and you make really good work and then you'll get to, you know, the and I think you still could do that. But once I, you know, started working with this patron and realized, you know, that he could gain access just based on this level of status or perceived status that he had, I couldn't believe how so many different institutions would just sort of kind of open their doors to him. Um, So, you know, seeing that and witnessing that also kind of changed my perspective a little bit on Mm. sort of how political the art world can be as well. But he was definitely a big factor I'm very grateful to him, but it also was very scary when he passed away as well. But I realized, again, it was kind of one of those moments where I sat down and I kind of crunched the numbers and realized that actually I was making just on my own without the sale, without his help in placing my work, that I was making the same amount that he was providing me, sometimes more. But that doesn't go to say that it's an insane amount of work, (laughs) a lot of travel. Mm -hmm. And when I look at the number at at the end of the year, I'm like, holy shit, that's a lot of travel and a lot of hard work that did not come like easy, you know, and I'm hoping, Mm -hmm. you know, the next mountain is actually 
to uh, work smarter, not harder kind of thing. (laughs) And I really do feel like that's just a matter of like being self-employed and starting a a business, you know, Um, takes a lot of work to kind of figure out all the different parts of the machine. That's it for part one. Tune in next week to hear part two of Wendy's interview. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. Do you have any, uh, sorry, can you still hear me? Yes. All right, I got a call from my phone, which was connected to my headphones. I was like, oh my God, what's (laughs) happening? (laughs) But it's fine. Bluetooth saved the mic.